What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. All right, good morning. Uh, This is Aaron Strout, host of the What to Know podcast show and CMO of W2O. And today I'm excited to bring you someone that you probably have heard of. Uh, He's made quite a few positive waves in the marketing communications landscape. His name is John Awada. He is a fellow at the Yale School of Management, chairman of the board of trustees for Cooper Hewitt and Smithsonian Design Museum, which personally, I, I think that's incredibly cool. Retired IBM senior vice president and chief brand officer. And also, as we were joking around a little bit, now grandfather twice over, which you said is one of the nicest accomplishments in that, which is a pretty good list of accomplishments. So welcome, John. Thank you, Aaron. I'm glad to be here. Appreciate that introduction. Very kind. Yes, of course. And and we'll just lay a little bit of uh, the landscape as we're talking. I think this is going to go live. You'll be hearing this probably end of November, early December. But today is the Friday after the election of the U.S. president. And it looks like we may get some news today. We won't talk politics, but um, both John and I were talking a little bit about where we are right now, and it's an interesting backdrop for um, for how we go through some of this. Speaking of background, uh, you did something that I think very few, if if any, do these days. Uh, you spent most of your career, now you're doing your post-career, at this little tech company that some people may have heard of called IBM. Uh, you were there, in fact, for 35 years and eight months. What initially attracted you you to the company, which I'm sure was a very different company when you joined, and what kept you there all these years? Yeah, so for some of your um, listeners and viewers here, it may seem um, hard to believe, but when I when I came out of school, IBM was the most admired and respected company in the world, and um, Fortune magazine had started its most admired companies survey uh, around that same time that I was coming out of university in California. And IBM was the most respected company three or four years. So whatever position you, whatever company you think holds that position today, whether it's an Apple or, or an Amazon or um, a Patagonia, whatever it is, that was IBM. And so I was very appreciative and grateful and honored when I was offered a job at IBM in, um, in California. To be honest, I didn't know much about what the company did other than I knew it had something to do with big computers. It was a big company, it was a global company, but it was respected. And as my parents said to me when they, um, when they heard that I had been offered a position there, they said um, they could choose anybody, you know, and um, you should be really honored that they, they are offering you a job. You know, so I think that's maybe lesson number one in the power of a brand and a reputation is that it, it seems to overpower a lot of the details. Why did I stay there all those years? Um, well, why do people move today? I know it's very I know it's very common to think that no one will ever work for a company for their entire career again. Um, I think people move around for lots of reasons. Um, but for me, I felt like I've actually worked for about seven companies because IBM has had to reinvent itself uh, many, many times over it. Certainly it's more than 100 year history, but even in my, my 35 years there, there were many different versions of IBM. And the reason why that's relevant to my decision to stay there is that I would never stop learning. 
uh, there was always change, always something new. Sometimes they were uh, very stressful, uh, very threatening. There were moments of survival. There were moments of breakthroughs. There were moments of comeback. Um, and almost every level uh, I was learning. And therefore, I never felt the need, desire uh, to, to, to leave. Well, thank you for answering that. And it is interesting because I would argue that a lot of people today, if they get offered a job with IBM, would be honored. And it's still, you know, a very a special place, I think, to, to work and continues to innovate and do great things. And I agree with you. Like, I loved your answer about the learning piece. I, I've had an interesting career in the fact that I worked for Fidelity Investments for nine years and, and I did two startups almost exactly two and a half years at each and then joined W2O almost 10 years ago. So I have this weird sandwich of long tenure, short, short, long tenure. And the thing at Fidelity is I kept learning, right? And it was when I felt like I stopped learning that I needed to move on. And I could have found other things there to do, but I felt like I had an itch. And I've, my time at W2O, I've really found that same thing. And as long as you are continuing to learn, it, it does feel like that's where you want to be. We will get into learning more in a minute um, on a couple of different levels, but one of the things I do want to talk about is um, we believe deeply in the power of data analytics, and I know a lot of people throw that around. I think some people really get into it and dig into it, and you're one of those people. And what struck me is in, in talking a little bit, and I had known this about you because I think, as I said in one of our prep sessions, um, your name preceded you and I had never met you, but had seen you speak and had heard of you. You're one of the first marketing execs to employ data in decision-making. Not completely shocking given where you worked uh, since IBM does care a little bit about data and analytics, uh, but you know, you embraced it so early, earlier than most. Like when was that light bulb moment for you that you're like, this is the thing I really need to do well beyond uh, many other of your peers? Well, I think if you if you strip away everything, what what business is IBM in, and arguably has been in since its start? I mean, it started off making uh, scales. I mean, like for meat <laughs> and clocks on the wall and time recording instruments. And then you know, years later, it made punch card tabulators and vacuum tube um, you know, early early versions of computers, and on and on and on. Some people could look at that and say, well, it hasn't done the same thing for 100 years. Well, that's one way of looking at it. Or they've done the same thing for 100 years, which is these are all tools that do the same kind of thing. What's that? It isn't computation. It's, it is pushing back the barriers or pushing back the boundaries of estimation, ambiguity, even ignorance and replacing it with certainty and precision and knowledge. So, you know, I've been at a company that for, uh, you know, a long time has been in the business of trying to give people certainty. Um, and, and you can call it data today, right? But, um, you know, I, I think more fundamentally, it's knowing uh, with conviction. So um, when, I, when I got into our field and I became uh, first chief communications officer, then the integrated CMO, CCO role in 2008, one of the first things that I was asked to do, well, sort of asked to do by the CEO at the time, Sam Palmasano, was to really examine our, our, our core identity as a company because we were going through another period of great change. He, he had divested the personal computer business 
the DRAM memory chip business, the hard drive business, all the things we had created. He started buying these small software companies, most of them in the analytics space and so forth. So people were very confused as to what IBM was. And he asked me to say, you know, you're, you're in charge of marketing now. You better, you better look at this. Well, one way of answering that, Aaron, is to, is to communicate, market, advertise, promote, publicize what you sell. Um, or you can reaffirm what you do really well, but just make it contemporary. And long story short, you know, we really looked into where, what the technology was capable of and where it was going and the impact it would have on business and society. And the answer turned out to be big data. We had to put quotations around that term <laughs> in 2008. Um, artificial intelligence still seemed like uh, science fiction. So we use terms like analytics and we use terms like instrumentation of, of systems. And that resulted from a marketing standpoint in Smarter Planet, which was our brand platform and smarter still is IBM's sort of moniker. But uh, that bulb went off for me, uh, you know, the minute I joined the company, but it really became core to what we did and practiced in marketing and communications in the, um, in the 2008 period and on. Last thing I'd say about that, which was a real eye opener for, for many was Watson playing Jeopardy um, in 2011, you know, we, we had a lot to do with that from, uh, from a branding, marketing and promotion side, but also, you know, just, uh, the collaboration with Jeopardy. I was in the audience when, when Watson played Jeopardy and, you know, there was no certainty, uh, that it was going to win, but to watch it actually perform, uh, in natural language, answer questions with confidence was astonishing. And it became very clear that this was inevitable. Not Watson, um, although Watson's turned out to be quite a good business, but artificial intelligence combined with, with data. It was the future of, of business. Well, you remind me of another IBM celebrity moment, and you may have been involved in this as well, but it's relevant, especially to the industry that I work in, where we help other companies, healthcare companies, make better decisions and communicate better and get to their audiences. And so um, there was a series called Mad Men. A few people probably watched this uh, in their day. And one of the turning points in the series, I want to say it was fairly late, maybe season four or five, they introduced this new thing called the IBM 360. And it was novel, but it was game-changing, particularly in the paid media space. And I remember the character, I'm blanking on his name, but you know, what a sort of big deal this became in his life and how, you know, what a behemoth it was, but it was a fundamental change in the way we went from art and emotion to really the math and the science. And I think what we found down the stretch is that the two have come together and it's really using the, the two together that is really your best bet. So um, it is interesting to think about the journey we have. And, you know, it's funny when you mentioned like having to put air quotes around big data in 2008, where big data really wasn't very big in comparison to what it is today, but it was a start uh, and you had to start somewhere and you were probably as, you know, prepared as anyone to do that. But we still are fighting that battle of trying to make sure that we're using the right data and the right, you know, insights to get to the right outcomes. And so um, what's old is new, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, you know, on that point, Aaron, I think the, not to get uh, wonky or 
persnickety about terminology, but I do think in our rush to become digital and everyone you know, knows that the pandemic has accelerated you know, digital transformation, otherwise you're not, you're not around. Um, but I do think people conflate data and digital as if they're the same thing, and they're not. Yes, there are zeros and ones and they, they run through computers and they go across the internet, but you can be digital and not use data in, in the lifeblood of your business. You can be digital because you, you're, on the, you're on the internet. You have apps that your customers and employees use. You can take orders over the internet. You could be on Zoom. You're digital. Data, however, is not PowerPoint. It's not spreadsheets. It's not dashboards alone. Data is instrumentation. Data is no knowledge coming in in real time from those apps, from the sensors, from the RFID tags, from the IoT devices, from the social media platforms. And that is data. And if it's not being um, you know, analyzed, used, and integrated into workflow, into decision-making, then it is possible to be a fully digital company, but a non-data-driven company. <laughs> And, um, and I think that's one of the things that uh, we see happening right now. There's this kind of bifurcation occurring. I like that distinction. And I, I guess if you're to simplify it, you could probably look at it as the data being the what and the digital being the how, and both of those together lead to the why, right? And so it really gets to how you do what you do. Um, I do want to talk a little bit more about the education piece, and I'm, I'm kind of fascinated about this, and you did tell me uh, a bit about this during our pre-prep, but as we mentioned in the intro, you are a fellow, uh, an executive fellow at the Yale School of Management, and you know this allows you to do some interesting things. One of the things that you talked about that really struck my attention or got my attention was this concept of stakeholder capitalism. Tell us a little bit more about what this means and I think this is particularly an important time as we go through COVID and a transformation and, and really rethinking everything we do, uh, probably a very important time to be thinking about stakeholder capitalism. Yeah, so it's, there are different uh, variations of different ways of describing this. Um, yeah, stakeholder capitalism is one. Sometimes you hear it as conscious capitalism. Um, and an aspect of it is ESG and so forth. But I, but I like stakeholder capitalism while it may be a somewhat clunky term. At the core of it, it's a, it's a struggle or it's a debate over, or it's a choice over the, the purpose of a corporation, the purpose of business. Last year with some fanfare, the Business Roundtable in the United States revised their statement of the purpose of the corporation. It had been very Milton Friedman-esque you know, the primacy of creating shareholder value. In other words, maximizing profits for the owners of the corporation. Um, in fairness to Milton Friedman and you know, his adherents, it was never just, you know, filthy lucre and don't pay attention to uh, anything else. I and mean, he did talk about the rules of the game, you know, and, um, but the Business Roundtable and uh, World Economic Forum and, and many other camps now say that the purpose of business is to create value for multiple stakeholders. And the big four uh, tend to be the customer, the employee, the investor, and, the, and society, you know, or, or the neighborhood, the community. Um, and um, 
there's many different points of view. First, why is this happening now? You know, some might say it's because the world needs a lot of help and businesses have a capability to do it. And it's almost a moral obligation of business to address societal issues. But notice in that argument, it isn't stakeholders. It's, it's you know, usually society and, and maybe the worker. Uh, another camp says, no, it's pragmatic business. Why? Because we're going through a massive generational change with the rise of millennials and Gen Zs. Why does that matter? Because the same people are the people you need to attract to be your employees, you know, the talent, and they have different expectations of who they're going to work for. The same people are your customers and consumers, and they have different expectations and requirements of the businesses that they are going to patronize. And they're also, as Larry Fink of BlackRock says, the investor of the future. So um, if you really follow Milton Friedman's logic, you'd agree with him in this regard. What do shareholders want? Well, maybe 50 years ago, they wanted just profit. But the shareholder of today, new generation of shareholders say, well, I want more than that. You know, I want these other issues to be addressed. The question that I'm looking at, um, and many others, of course, but through my fellowship, which I'm very grateful to Ogilvy because they, they, they uh, made possible this new fellowship at Yale, I'm looking at the, um, the implications of the rise of stakeholder capitalism to business leaders. And I guess I, I would put it this way, is this a shift only in mindset and philosophy or is this also the emergence of new management science? Is there a new capability, skills, management systems, operations that we need to have mastery of in order to lead enterprises that create value for multiple stakeholders? Or is this just, no, no, we just have to do it and let's, it's just good business. I, um, it's, it's too early for me to give a definitive answer, but my, my hypothesis and frankly, my hope is that it's the latter <laughs> that, or rather it's, it is, it does require new management science. And I'm very interested in that. Well, I, I love where you're going. We could probably spend an entire podcast just talking about that and the fact that, you know, there's a guy named Simon Sinek, which many people know who did the famous Ted talk and book about the golden orb. And it talks about the why and the purpose. And I think it's interesting going back to your opening statement where you talked about joining IBM, which was the number one place, but you also mentioned two other companies, Apple and Patagonia, that I would argue are two of the most synonymous with being focused on the why, right? Versus the what or the how in terms of how they proceed. And guess what? They've both done extremely well in terms of their you know, business pursuits. And I think those two don't need to be mutually exclusive. And I liked you know, the, the four pillars that you brought together. I think more people are realizing the employee aspect of happy employees means happy customers, which means happy you know, investors. And that can all work harmoniously with good environmental practice and you know, being good to society. And I do feel like over the last, you know, what it's been probably 20 years and you and I in our pre-session, we're talking a little bit about politics and the fact that, you know, we, we are where we are right now, but it's really been a lot of gridlock, both starting in the, you know, George W. Bush administration, the Obama administration. And in some ways, maybe this is the great forcing function to, to have us break through. And I think one of the things that is doing that is this partnership that we're starting to see between uh, public and private, right? It's starting to say, we can't just rely on businesses to do this. We can't just rely on the government to do it. But maybe if we bring the best of both worlds together, 
uh, we can succeed. And, and I love that people like you and places like Yale are really thinking about these concepts deeply and helping to, to move this conversation forward. One of the things I do wanna ask about, because it's fascinating and I'm sure a lot of people wanna know, like what is the role of someone that's an executive fellow at a you know a, an esteemed university like Yale, like what does a day in the life look like for you, John? A day in the life this year was very different than the day in the life of the prior years. In prior sure. in prior years, it was a while while the the graduate school was in session, it was my Tuesday, and I would I would uh, I live about uh, 50, 50 minutes from New Haven, and I would drive up um, to to Yale, uh, and I would spend the day at the School of Management. It, the day would be spent uh, delightfully in a combination of. Uh, lecture if I'm invited to lecture in different classes, uh, one-on-ones with uh, graduate students as well as faculty, some roundtables. But the best part um, is that I get to drop in on any class uh, and just uh, and just sit back and learn, which is just the, that kind of passport is a, it's like a, un- incredibly valuable and rewarding. And I sort of do the same thing now, but like the rest of us, I've just been doing it, um, sitting here looking at my computer. And now with the Stakeholder Catalyst Project, I also, in addition to the things I mentioned, um, I have a, a, a little uh, research group and, uh, and, we, and we're doing, uh, we, we just did secondary research and we're about to start some primary research. Well, that sounds cool. And I, I think carrying along that uh, education theme, which, uh, Thank you for being one of those people that gives back to society in that way. But you also are learning as you go. And I like the passport concept. We have a program or a, it's more than a program. I, it's, it's something we've been doing for 10 years now. And it's a center that we created uh, between W2O, um, Jim and Audra Weiss. Uh, Jim is the CEO of W2O and Syracuse there at Newhouse University. Uh, every year we do something called Social Commerce Day. It's led by our sort of professor emeritus, Gary Greats, who you know, and was the one that kindly introduced the two of us. Um, you recently spoke there as their keynote. We've had some pretty big deals and I know that they were very excited to have you. And I love the title of this, but you did something on the topic of the big rethink. Let's talk about what that is and what the implications of this rethink will have on our society going forward. Yeah, I mean, this has been an unforgettable year. Um, If you've lived long enough, you realize that while this one is unprecedented in some ways, the idea of a tumultuous period is not not new. So we we have to think about the immediate issues like managing public health and um, going through cycles of politics and things like that. But we also shouldn't lose sight of the longer term effects. And, And Clearly, there are some new behaviors that we've all started in response to the pandemic um, that will persist. I mean, everything from contactless payments to telemedicine will, will now just be um, if maybe the default way that we, we do business. And that, you know, that's not going to surprise anybody. Um, but at the same time, a lot of things that we see um, uh, happening started before the pandemic and before the, this period of social unrest. And, and that really have, to, you have to really pay attention to that. You know, at IBM, as I mentioned before, you know, we, a lot of companies don't have more than act one because they, they fail to anticipate or respond 
fast enough to major shifts, right? Not just to cycles of economic cycles or political cycles or, or whatever. And um, I tried to draw attention to some of those larger ones. One we've talked about, which is um, from the perspective of business leadership, which is my background, um, stakeholders versus shareholder only. We've discussed that, right? And, and I said, I, I, I don't believe this is only a mind shift, uh, a mindset shift. I think it actually requires new skills and capabilities. The second point I made sort of touches on that. You know, forever we have thought about the audiences we, we want to reach or target or serve as segments of populations. You know, and we, you can come up with the most sophisticated segmentation models you like. You can call them different things. You know, you could say we're going to segment the population by psychographics, by aspiration, by affiliation, zip code, job title, age, household income, size of company. You can even create, you know, 15 segmentation um, facets. But in the end, what are we doing? We're we're telling a group of people who they are and what we think they want. And we hope that by putting messages in front of them and offers and so forth, we are right. Well, what's wrong with that? Uh, well, we can do better today. Why? Because of something else we've talked about, Aaron, that's the rise of data. I mean, um, wittingly or unwittingly, we as humans are throwing off so much information about ourselves Everything from, of course, our, you know, our movements on the internet, our movements in the physical world, our sleeping patterns, our buying patterns, uh, the people we speak with who influence us, on and on. And what does that do to the way the world has worked? Well, it radically shifts us from thinking about people, whether they're customers, consumers, frankly, patients, students, employees, citizens, as segments of populations and as unique individuals. And um, this requires, of course, not you know, new capabilities. There's a reason why MarTech has been a, a massive uh, you know, investment area, new skills, new team configurations, new capabilities, a big culture shift in how decisions are made in companies and how, how things are operate, operationalized. So that's a big one to me you know, that, that historic shift from segment to the individual. And the last one is, is trust. And I'm, I'm not gonna get on some ethical or moral uh, high horse here. Uh, I, I do think it also relates to technology changes. So trust, every company and brand should be trusted not to do things that are incorrect, um, of course. But we're now in a world of fake news and deep fakes. And I'm not even talking about, and I don't wish to talk about politics. You know, your, your, your deep fakes and your fake news and the distortion field and the polarization of, of what is, what you can believe, what, you, what shapes your opinion and ultimately your actions could be about your favorite sports teams or your favorite products or, or entertainment. But we now live in a world where you cannot trust your eyes anymore because of the ability to have uh, manipulated images, video, audio, and that combined with algorithms, these very, very powerful platforms that can amplify through, through bots and so forth. So it may seem to a person that um, everyone is talking about the same thing. 
or this thing that happened, which didn't actually happen, did happen. And it just, it just becomes very, very difficult. So I, I do think one of these big shifts here is that we have to take trust to a different level. We have to ensure that whatever content we put out in the world has, an, has the kind of integrity and quality that we used to associate only with the fourth estate or, or with the academy. And I think that's a responsibility that falls on the shoulders of business because, you know, we, we are all publishers now and broadcasters, as we know. And that was the last point I made. Yeah, and I think you talked about um, something drilling down on this topic. It is this sort of implications between data and artificial intelligence, AI. And there's this concept of, um, you know, responsible AI or, you know, conscious, socially conscious AI. And I think it's one of the things back to your whole conversation about IBM Watson and Jeopardy and just the amazing ability. I know people simultaneously love and are scared to death of what artificial intelligence can mean. And, you know, you just touched on the, the piece, which is we do have more data now than ever, all this exhaust data from what we do in the physical world, as well as all of our behavioral data based on what we do online. And so talk a little bit about the responsibility and then maybe the balance between that trust and creating value and making sure that just because you can do something doesn't mean you do do something. And I think probably some of the answer, just doing a little foreshadowing, also has to do with the transparency through which you explain to your customer what you're doing. It doesn't get hidden behind a lot of legalese, but I'm sure this is something I know you've thought a lot about and you're probably helping other companies or students or organizations think about. Yes, it, it, yes, I am. And, um, you know, it's, it's not public yet, but I'm involved with a, a group of companies and I, I believe we are going to form a new kind of organization. It's not, a, it's not, it really has nothing to do with marketing or communications or government relations. It has more to do with what you've just talked about, Aaron, which is the responsible use of data and unlocking value from data. Um, and, you know, you touched on the issues here. On the one hand, we have this new era where the potential to learn more, to know things, to improve things, to solve things, to be relevant to people, just tremendous, right? That's the promise of data. And that's pretty well accepted. But at the same time, that very uh, same new phenomenon, it, it raises so many issues uh, from, from privacy and security to um, civil liberties and public discourse. And I think unless business really wants a lot of regulation, which is you know, civil society's right, um, business has to demonstrate a responsible use in this case of data and artificial intelligence. And even before artificial intelligence, the use of data and algorithms, um, you know the threats here, the risks from algorithmic bias or AI bias um, on the other hand, you know, AI has the chance, we have the chance here to use the new, the new capability to counter human bias, e even unconscious bias. Um, we have the ability here to, um, to really drive forward, um, being able to serve populations at scale that we couldn't reach today and so forth. And so I, the, the, the work that I'm interested in doing here with these other companies is these are companies that are major brands, they're cross industry, and they care about two things. They've staked their futures on the use of data. So that's a competitive advantage. And they really um, believe 
in earning trust and, and maintaining their strong reputations built over, and I think in almost every case I can think of, decades. You know? and, and therefore, when you put those two together, we've staked our future on this new source of a competitive advantage, but that very thing could really undermine trust and have an impact on our reputation and brand. That's a really good place to be with these companies. And so I look forward to working with them and others to try to figure out how do we accelerate our learning about the use of data and AI, but do it in a way that earns trust through responsible behavior. Well, thank you. And that's a good point to shift from the heavy and the very philosophical to the still philosophical, but a little lighter. I like to end the interviews with my guests with a couple of uh, more personal questions. And one of the, the questions I've started to ask this year, I feel like in the pandemic, it's only um, fair to do this, but uh, imagine that you've been granted one wish, any wish, what would you choose? Boy, that's tempting, why? isn't it? Um, I, I guess- I guess, A lot of directions. Yeah, you know. yeah. Well, you know, I, I guess I, I can't do much better than the, the golden rule, which is as if we treated everybody, each other, the way we would like to be treated, um, not only would I think um, we'd all be better off, but we would really think hard about what we would like. <laughs> and we would like more than to be left alone. We would like more than to be um, not discriminated against. We would like more than to um, have our, our, our space and privacy. We would like to be treated kindly. We would like to be helped. We would like to be loved. And I think if we just practice that one thing, it would really unpack many other things that uh, would be beneficial. Well, I love the profound nature of that answer while at the same time, it's so simple, right? It's like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And it's funny because it's carrying a theme for uh, this week's guests or what people would have heard on the, the week of election week, Jane Sorensen Khan, who was a health economist and an advisory board member. And she talked about love and, and you know respect and wanting to be treated fairly and so it, it does seem to be a theme that everyone's thinking about, particularly uh, the smart ones like yourself. So appreciate that. I do have a variation on my last question. Uh, I do like to ask most guests about their deserted album, uh, island album. You asked me if we could adjust it slightly, and I, I was happy to do this. So I'm going to rephrase it a little bit to make it fun. And that is to say that today's Groundhog Day. <laughs> I think a lot of us are living Groundhog Day. But you're stuck watching the same movie over and over again. Uh, if you could choose what that movie was, which movie would you choose and why? And I understand this is because you're a big film buff and we wanted to be able to explore, <laughs> you know, what that that uh, secret movie was that you really would be well willing to live with. Thanks. First of all, the reason why, uh, you know, the album one's hard for me is uh, not, not only am I not really, I enjoy music, but I really just don't know much about it. I'm, I'm frozen in time in the 80s, you know, when 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 music was great and hair was big and and my albums, my albums there would be very disappointing and, and, and very typical of that, of that era. Movies, movies. Okay, so I heard once that there are basically three, three stories and that's it in, in, the, in the world, in history. And, and they are uh, variations of Boy Meets Girl, um, A Stranger Comes to Town, and Let's Go on a Trip. And, the, and if I thought, I thought about a movie that I had to watch uh, over and over again for a year, it would have to combine those three. And that movie for me is Roman Holiday, uh, which, 
you know, every time I say that to my friends and family, they they like what? Uh, I said, if you haven't seen it, you oh, you have you have to rush out and, and get it immediately. Um, Screenwritten by um, Dalton Trumbo, by the way, Gregory Peck, Audrey Hepburn, her first major motion picture, won the Academy Award in her debut. Amazing. Um, but it combines all those things, right? A stranger comes to town. That's Audrey Hepburn. Uh, boy meets girl and vice versa. And they, they take a trip, but it, it takes place basically in one day. And that place is Rome. And uh, it's sweet. It's, it's, it, it's uh, moving. It's funny. It's incredibly well-written and acted and directed. Um, I just love it. Well, so you probably don't know this, but the reason I ask these questions of the guests really isn't to find out what it is. It's the thought process that goes into it. And you absolutely nailed that you are crisp and concise. <laughs> and I love the narrative. Interesting sidebar, which is my youngest daughter's name is Audrey. And we actually named her after Audrey Hepburn. And uh, so big fans. And I don't think I've actually seen Roman. Oh, Holiday, so oh, oh. I will adjust this because I, I also am a movie buff. And so I will have to uh, remedy that wrong. But uh, I do want to say thank you to, John Awada, who is, as we mentioned, a fellow at Yale School of Management, chairman of the Board of Trustees for Cooper Hewitt and the Smithsonian Design Museum. And then of course, retired IBM senior VP and chief brand officer. And clearly good guy, deep thinker, uh, learner, educator overall. So thank you so much, John, for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Aaron, thank you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Well, I did too. And uh, so this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. And hope all of you have a great week. And thanks again, John. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify. And view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.